Well, good afternoon, everyone. I wish I could say it's good to see you. Can't say that. Um, hopefully, uh, you're able to see and hear. We've had technical difficulties. Uh, this is the second time in one day. Our men's discipleship group this morning ran into some difficulty, and again this afternoon. But God has uh, smoothed the way a bit, and here we are. And uh, for those that don't know me, my name is Tim Shorey, one of the pastors of Risen Hope Church, and uh, it's my privilege to open up God's Word uh, with you this afternoon. And so I invite you to turn in your Bibles uh, to Matthew chapter 23, Matthew chapter 23, and I'm going to read verses 23 and 24, Matthew 23 verses 23 and 24. This is our Lord Jesus speaking just a few days before his death. This is in the middle of a longer sermon, so to speak, which was really a sustained rebuke of the Pharisees and of their hypocrisy. And in the middle of that lengthy rebuke, we read these words in verse 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we have sung, Oh, what an amazing love I see. And indeed, Lord, we know that to be true from experience. When we think about you, when we think about this world that you have made and all the goodness and fullness and abundance of this world, we see amazing love. And then when we look at our own lives and see day in and day out your provision, your care, your protection, your safety, we say, what an amazing love we see. And when, when we think of the cross, when we think of Calvary, on which your precious Son died for our sins, we say again, oh, what an amazing love I see. Your love is amazing. It is astonishing to us. It is satisfying to us. It is enriching to us. It is, at the end of the day, at the end of every day, it is truly all we need. And Father, as we talk today and think today about a topic that may be uncomfortable in certain respects, may it be that we will see this as an expression of your love and knowing your love, be willing to respond to it with generosity in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, for those that have been with us uh, throughout the weeks and months, you will know that we have completed our overall exposition of Matthew chapter 23, and next week we'll be moving into chapters 24 and 25. Now, as we've come to the end of chapter 23, as pastors, we have thought that it would be a good idea to dip 
back into this chapter to make sure that we don't miss some valuable teaching on a specific topic, the topic of giving and tithing, teaching that is somewhat buried in the text and might be lost uh, in the bigger picture of what Jesus says here. This is a topic that would be much easier to preach in normal circumstances. This would, is a topic that would be much easier to preach if I was actually able to look into faces and judge and sense people's interaction with and their response to this teaching. It would be easier uh, if all those that were viewing me right now and listening to this actually knew me. The reality is that uh, we are having somewhere over 500 people view our worship times each week, and I'm guessing, since that's about twice as many people as are in Risen Hope Church, that that means there's a lot of people watching that don't know me, that don't know us, that don't know our church. And so this message is coming to you in something of a relationship vacuum not knowing us, not knowing how we live together and function together as a church family, it may be that this topic on giving and tithing may seem out of place, especially at a time such as we are living in. But the reality is that as a church, we are committed to what we call expository preaching, the exposition of God's Word from the start of books all the way through to the end of books. And sometimes, both in timing and in topic, we can come to a passage that perhaps, left to ourselves, we wouldn't choose to preach, at least not at that time or in those circumstances. And to be honest, this is one of those times, this is one of those texts. However, because we're committed because we're committed to preaching through the books of the Bible, we are committed, we have a responsibility to pause and look at this. And let's be reminded that this is King Jesus talking. This is our King preaching here. And in the midst of His sermon, He teaches us some things that we, as, as His glad and as His willing subjects, need to hear. Now, as we hear this, I want you to know that there's another reason why we think that it's valuable to preach, and that is because we genuinely believe, we are genuinely persuaded that for those who love King Jesus, the subject of radical generosity is a happy subject. It is a wonderful subject. Subject. We are glad to hear what Jesus has to say about this. This is not bothersome or burdensome for those who love the Lord and who know that they are loved by the Lord. This is a delight. We want to know. King Jesus, tell us how to give. Tell us how to live. And so he does. If we 
go through the Gospel of Matthew, we will find to this point through chapter 23, I count up at least 18 times when Jesus talks about money or giving or generosity. All the way from the the Magi who visited Jesus in Matthew 2 and brought with them what? Gold and frankincense and myrrh, an offering of praise. Then you have Jesus in Matthew chapter 6 reminding us to not lay up treasures on earth where moth and rust corrupt, but to lay up treasures in heaven. He's talking there about generosity with our resources. Or in chapter 6 and verse 33, seek first the kingdom of God. And in the context, he's talking about with our money, with our resources, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. As we've preached our way through Matthew's Gospel, we haven't taken a lot of time on each of those texts, and for months and months and months, we have been planning to just pause and think about giving when we came to this text. And so that's what we're doing here this afternoon. We want you to be informed. Those of you who are members of Risen Hope Church, we want you to have a fresh sense of a a kind of foundation for your giving experience as a Christian. For those of you who are not part of Risen Hope Church, we hope this serves you and your churches Because if you capture what Jesus has to say, it will bless you as you bless your church with generosity and commitment. We want you to be informed. We believe that those who begin, who begin their lifestyle of generosity at this baseline of a tithe or a tenth of their income, if done in the right way, if done for the right reasons, they will receive God's blessing in their lives. That's how God's economy works. In in the midst of this pandemic, in the midst of the economic uncertainty and instability of our time, please listen to the repeated connection between generosity and God's provision. So in Matthew 6, where Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God, he has just been talking about clothing and shelter and food. And he says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Live the generous life, the God-first life, and God says, I will take care of you. Or in Matthew 19, Jesus says that those who have forsaken houses and lands for His name's sake will receive back 100-fold. Or in the book of Philippians chapter 4, when the Philippians once again had, had sent a generous gift to Paul to subsidize his ministry and his life, Paul responds to them in the well-known verse, Philippians 4 and verse 19, But my God shall supply every need of yours. Listen to that. My God shall supply every need of yours according to His riches in glory in Christ Jesus. 
Or in Galatians 6, don't grow weary in doing good. And in the context that doing good is sharing with others, don't grow weary of doing good. For in due season, we will reap if we do not give up. Or 1 Timothy 6, verses 17 through 19, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Listen to these promises that are attached to a lifestyle of generosity or in what is perhaps the the greatest, the classic text of Scripture about generosity, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. In chapter 9, verses 6 through 11, we read these words. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly, that is, whoever gives stingily and grudgingly, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able, listen to this, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed Freely he has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. What promises. Astonishing promises. And finally, this blessing of God is tied directly to the practice of tithing in Malachi chapter 3 and verse 10. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I realize that I've thrown a lot of texts at you, a lot of verses at you, but I hope it helps. I hope it encourages. I hope it inspires. The promise of God's blessing is not a, not a gimmick and it's not a name it or claim it prosperity teaching to somehow give us an excuse to manipulate your conscience or play on your emotions or, or pillage your bank accounts. It is simply God's promise to us. A promise that He always keeps. And it's a promise that we as your pastors are thrilled to believe and to live in the light of. We, as your pastors, and you may not be aware of this, but 
pastors, at least uh, should, uh, they are called to be generous too. And I know in our own life, Galen and me have delighted, and I know this is true of the other pastors of our church, delighted to practice tithing. One, one of the, the joys, and some of you have heard me say this before, but one of the joys of getting older is that you have lived long enough to see the Lord keep His promises. And I've lived long enough to know that God keeps His Word. I remember being just married in college where I was studying for the ministry. And I was making a pittance on, on a uh, night watchman job and a couple of other random jobs. We were poor. So poor that my mom, who never knew what it was like to not be poor, when she visited our home, uh, she would go away concerned because she'd look at our cupboards and our refrigerator and she'd see, she'd see a half a loaf of bread and she'd see a can of tuna, uh, maybe a box of cereal, and she was concerned. And if my mom, who had so very little, was concerned about how little we had, that was a sign of how little we had. We didn't have much and yet it was our joy to tithe. Or when I first started in ministry in March of 1982, my salary was $90 a week. And we tithed because it was our joy to tithe. And see, here's, here's what's happened. I am now 61, almost 62 years old, and I have never gone hungry. And our family, our family of six children, has never gone hungry. God has provided every step of the way. God has been faithful to His promises. It ends up being a wonderful way to live, an adventure in faith and in the fulfillment of the promises of God. So what I want to do in our, the remainder of our time is to help God's people by giving you a place of confidence and hopefully growing faith so that you don't grow weary or weak in this grace of giving, but grow all the more bold and all the more cheerful in it, knowing, knowing what God's Word says and knowing that God keeps His Word to us. So let's, let's look at this text. I know that was a lengthy introduction, but... I felt it was needed. Let's look at the text again, verses, verse 23 of Matthew 23. And in our translation, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These, that is justice, mercy, and faithfulness, you ought to have done without neglecting the others, that is, tithing down to the detail of our spices. You blind guides straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. I, I like how the, the New Living Translation captures this. It reads like this, What sorrow awaits you teachers of religious law and you Pharisees, hypocrites? For you are careful to tithe even the tiniest income from your herb gardens, 
but you ignore the more important aspects of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. You should tithe, yes, but do not neglect the more important things. Blind guides, you strain your water so you won't accidentally swallow a gnat, but then you swallow a camel. What we, what we need to notice here in this text is what the hypocrisy was not. The hypocrisy was not that they were careful and fastidious in giving a tithe of everything. If we think that's the hypocrisy, we've missed the whole point. There is nothing wrong with specific, detailed, precise obedience to the laws and the ways of God. That's called holiness, as a matter of fact. It wasn't that they were fastidious and detailed about tithing their tiniest income from their herb gardens. The problem was that they were not fastidious. They were not committed to justice, to showing mercy, to walking in faith and in faithfulness. Jesus says explicitly, yes, you should tithe, but don't swallow a camel while you're doing that. For those that don't know, the word tithe means tenth. It's not just another word for an offering or a religious gift. It refers to a very specific idea found in the Bible that God's people have practiced for thousands of years, a practice of giving at least one-tenth of their income to the work of spiritual ministry and mission. This, this text is fascinating, for in it, Jesus puts his stamp of approval on tithing, these things you ought to have done without neglecting the others, while simultaneously warning us about the dangers of tithing. And that's what I want us to look at here. I want us to cover two, if not, or possibly three main headings. The case for tithing, the perils of tithing, and then third, if time allows, the spiritual graces we need in order to live a radically generous life. So let's, let's begin with the case for tithing. And I know there's debate on this, even among very, very good brothers and sisters in the Lord, brothers and sisters who love the Scriptures, who love the truth, who love Jesus. And there is debate. And if somebody were to ask me, Tim, can you say with absolute 100% certainty that your case for tithing is airtight with no doubt whatsoever, I would have to say no. But what I can say is that the case is strong, that tithing is meant by Jesus to be the ongoing practice of his disciples as a functioning starting point for Christian generosity. Let me base that on, on three facts. I'm just going to touch on these as quickly as possible. The practice of tithing is at least as old, at least as old as Abraham and Jacob. Way back in Genesis 14 and Genesis 28, we see that Abraham and Jacob were committed to tithing. Now you say, well, what in the world does that matter? It matters because many people have argued that tithing was a part of the law of Moses and only for a certain time and a certain people. And, and folks, their, their concern is well taken. There is a lot in the law of Moses that is not for us 
today that doesn't apply to us today. And in fact, there are many Christians nowadays who really struggle to read the Old Testament because they, they don't understand that there were temporary laws and temporary commands and temporary ways of doing things that God did back then that were not meant to be carried on today. Things like holy wars and dietary restrictions and sacrificial systems and strict Sabbath laws and a whole long list of sins that were punishable by death and tabernacles and temples and the priesthood and holy places and God's punishment of sinful nations through the sword of Israel. These, these were things that went on in the Old Testament. We need to understand that they are not continuing today. And the question is, is tithing one of those things? But we would say that tithing actually predates Moses by about 600 years at least, as Abraham and Jacob practiced it long before the law of Moses came into existence, which says at the very least that it's a sacred tradition that goes back a long time. Secondly, as we've seen right here in Matthew 23, the practice of tithing was validated by Jesus in the last few days of his life. While Jesus and the New Testament explicitly rescind dietary laws and ceremonial laws and sacrificial laws and temple tabernacle laws while Jesus and the New Testament explicitly say those things have come to an end Jesus here says that tithing is a good thing to do in the very last days of his life that to us at least builds a case that it's something we should practice today. And then third, the practice of tithing, I believe, is affirmed by the Apostle Paul, at least as a model for the early church. In 1 Corinthians 9, verses 13 and 14, Paul, Paul argues that pastors and mission workers, those who give their whole lives to the mission of the gospel and the work of ministry, should normally be paid for their labors. And he bases that on the tithing laws of the Old Testament. You can read about that in 1 Corinthians 9, verses 13 and 14. He doesn't actually use the word tithe there, but he refers to those things in the temple, in the tabernacle, that were the tithe, the food in the temple, the offerings on the altar. And he says that, that just as in the Old Testament, people were past or priests were supported by the tithes and offerings, so in the New Testament... Believers are to give a regular, consistent, generous portion of their income to the cause of the gospel through their church. We, we believe that the case is strong. But we must add that there are perils to tithing. That if we do not notice, we will fall into Pharisee-like sin. Three perils. Peril number one, tithing can mask. It can mask. Remember, 
the hypocrisy of Matthew 23, the word is taken from the, the ancient Greek theater and they wore masks so that what people saw on the outside, a smiling mask, did not reflect what was on the inside. Well, tithing can mask the stingy injustice and inhumanity of our hearts. If we're not careful, our tithing can actually mask it can put up a front. It can make us look generous when, in fact, we are not committed to justice and mercy and faith. This was the problem with the Pharisees. They were tithers, but they had no concern for justice. They were tithers, but they had no concern for mercy. They were rigid in their tithing, but they had cold and inhumane and uncaring hearts. Folks, for, for most people, it really isn't that hard to tithe. Really, all you need to do is adjust a good amount. I'm not saying for everyone there are some who are in very, very trying and difficult circumstances, but for most of us, it's not that hard to tithe. Adjust your vacation plans a bit, the times you go out to eat, uh, your wardrobe updates, your entertainment expenses, a few other luxuries here and there, and you'd be surprised how it comes together. It's not that hard to tithe, but it is very hard to do justice. It is very hard to show mercy. Think about the history of the church. Think about the history of the church in this country. Christians everywhere, I am afraid, have been guilty of this kind of hypocrisy. Think about the history of race and prejudice in our country right up till now. Frederick Douglass, as many would know, was a believer in Christ, but he had no regard for the church of his day. One of the reasons was, and he tells this story in one of his books, he, he tells of a master who was actually a pastor, the Reverend Rigby Hopkins, who would go to church on Sunday and preach, quote, about kindness, mercy, and brotherly love, and then, as a matter of ritual, every Monday would whip at least one slave. Not because the slave had done anything wrong, but by the reverend's own admission, it was simply his way of controlling the slaves. Friends, that is brazen and if Matthew 23 is any indicator. That is hell-deserving hypocrisy. I think that Jesus just might, just might have something to say about that. When on Sunday one preaches or on Sunday one gives a tithe, but then on Monday one shows prejudice and bigotry and injustice, that is a hypocrisy. That is a, an abuse. That is a peril of tithing. I gave. 
but I don't have to do justice. This is heartbreakingly brought to mind, it seems, with such regularity in our culture that we can't avoid, not if we have sensitive consciences and sensitive hearts, we can't avoid it. There's another area of injustice that is more hidden, more obscure. It's not as obvious. It's not as widely reported. But think about abortion. Think about the killing of the unborn. Science and Scripture agree beyond any reasonable doubt that that is a little human being in the womb. And 3,000 are killed every single day in this country of ours. And it goes with hardly a word of concern. But we tithe and we give. But do we do justice? Do we love mercy? Do we walk in faith? If we don't care about Ahmad Arbery, but give our tithe, something is wrong. If we don't care about the thousands of little girls and boys being killed, but give our tithe, then something is wrong. Or if we give our tithe in church, but then mistreat our spouse or our child on the way home from church, and show them injustice, then something is wrong. The peril of tithing is that it can mask the injustice and the inhumanity of our hearts. Peril number two, tithing can mask the insincerity of our faith and of our worship. Back in Matthew 15, King Jesus has already warned us about this. He has already told us, warned us about giving in such a way that hides the real condition of our hearts. And that's, that's where he says uh, to the leaders of his day, you hypocrites, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain they worship me. He is, he is saying that they, that they are guilty of externally giving, but not loving. Externally worshiping, but not adoring Christ. Tithing can mask the injustice and the inhumanity of our hearts. It can mask the insincerity of our worship and of our faith. And third, it can hinder the freedom and the liberality of full Christian generosity. Believe it or not, tithing can actually keep you from being generous as defined by Jesus. Tithing is a starting point, not the ultimate goal of Christian giving. Too many are content with tithing when they could give so much more. I can understand and, and appreciate how some people might think that tithing is not for today, but we must realize that that is not reason to give less than a tithe. For truth be told, if you study the teachings of King Jesus about giving, you will discover that He is clearly teaching us over and over again to live in a radically generous life, to, to, to give in such a way that it actually goes beyond the tithe. All the New Testament examples of generosity are radical ones. The disciples left houses and land. They, they gave these things away so that they could follow Christ. The Macedonian 
Christians in 2 Corinthians 8, they gave beyond their ability. That meant when they gave, when they, when they handed over their gifts, the numbers didn't add up. They didn't know how they were going to pay their bills, but they gave, they begged, Paul says, earnestly for the favor of giving. The poor widow who gave all that she had. The early church that sold land and possessions in order to give to the poor. The early Christians who gave themselves into a lower standard of living. The nature of true Christian generosity goes far beyond tithing. And tithing can actually hinder that. Because we get too easily contented. I've given my tenth. When God is saying to us, oh, I have provided you with so much more. And I want you to pour out a heart of generosity in all directions so that my blessing might come upon you. There, are, there is a case to be made for tithing. There are perils to tithing. And I have to confess, I don't know when I started here with the uh, delay in our start. So give me another few minutes and let me just, let me just offer to you a few spiritual graces that are needed for the practice of Christian generosity. If you want to grow in your generosity, if you, if you want to deepen in your practice of Christian generosity, if you want to stretch higher and further in this practice, here are five or six graces you will need. First of all, you will need the grace of faith. You will need to believe with all of your heart that God is a God who keeps His promises. That if you seek first the kingdom of God, He will add all these things to you. He will provide for you. My God will supply all that you need according to His riches in glory in Christ Jesus. We need a spirit of faith. We need to believe that God doesn't lie. That God is ready to open up the windows and the the portals of heaven and pour down His mercy and His provision upon us, not to make us rich, not to make us wealthy, not so that we can buy big houses and do all the stuff that we might think about doing with all of our money, but so that we might be even more enriched to give to others and to enjoy the things He gives to us. We need a spirit of faith. We need a heavenward orientation. Don't lay up treasures on earth, but store up treasures in heaven. Live and give with eternity in view. We need a Jesus-focused passion. Something that will motivate the faith and the generosity to which we are called is having a Jesus-focused and contented passion. Getting to that place in our life or pursuing that place in our lives where we realize that Jesus is enough. We don't need more in order to be happy. We don't need more in order to have our identity. We don't need more in order to achieve whatever it is that we are achieving. In Christ, 
We have all we need. We have our identity. We have our forgiveness. We have our salvation. We have our promise of heaven and eternal life and eternal riches and blessing in Christ Jesus. In Jesus, we have all we need. We will also need what John Piper calls a wartime mindset. What he means by that is that when, when it's wartime, people tighten their belt. They think more outwardly. They think more in terms of the greater need. We've seen a little bit of this, haven't we, in this pandemic? And it hasn't been as consistent. It hasn't been as deep. It hasn't been as profound as perhaps we might like it to be. But there, there have been more and more people who have a concern for the public good and they are making decisions and cutting back and changing the lifestyle for the good of others and John Piper says that if we rightly understand the fact that we as the church are, are uh, in the midst of a spiritual warfare to advance the kingdom of God throughout this world, we will have a warfare mindset that says we are willing to give up extras that the kingdom of God might advance in this world. We will need, next, a godly ambition. Here is something. If you, if, you want to, if you want to make a difference, and I know that's maybe kind of a self-centered way of putting it, but if you want to make a difference, if you have godly ambition, here's one thing you can do. Give. Give generously. Given away so that your offering, your tithes impact the world for the Lord Jesus Christ. Did you know that churches thrive and the poor eat and pastors survive and children are taught and missions flourish? World. We, in our own partnership with Sovereign, Sovereign Grace Churches, we, we've helped to establish a church in Croatia. We've helped to establish a church in Jamaica. We've helped to establish a pastor's college in Zambia through our giving, through our generosity. We get to participate in the big things of what God is doing in this world. This is a privilege. Cultivate a godly ambition because it will stir up within you a desire to give. And finally, as I close, we need a cross-shaped vision as well. In other words, we need to see the suffering Savior and all that He gave for us, if in fact we are going to be motivated to give to him and to others. You know the text. You've heard me quote it many times. 2 Corinthians 8 and verse 9. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. So that you and I, by his poverty, might become rich. The cross of the Lord Jesus Christ is the self-emptying, the self-impoverishing of the eternal Son of God, pouring Himself out so that we 
through his poverty might be made rich. There is nothing that will so motivate a heart to give generously more than a realization that the eternal Son of God has given everything for us. And so, my friends, let's consider these things, not legalistically, not as a burden, but as a delight. Let us remember the words of our Savior who said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. And he wasn't joking. It really is. May God stir this within us and keep us faithful. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, my prayer, my longing is that this will not fall on ears as a burden, but as a blessing. That you will stir us, O oh Lord, to be like Jesus in all of his generous love. Thank you for your word. May your spirit gently press it home to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.